Well, Jason's gone, so Patrick's probably preaching today. I think it's kind of convenient that the week that we're ending the story that we're talking about Revelation is the weekend that Jason happens to go out of town. How convenient, Jay. I, I mean, I know it's Laura's birthday and, and all, but how convenient is that? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, Jason. <laughs> you know, it is the most confusing book in the Bible, and it's, it's one of the most controversial books in the Bible. Everyone has an opinion on Revelation. But as I began my research for this sermon, I, I read this really cool quote. It's by the guy who um, organized the story. I'm going to have it right behind me. His name's Randy Frazee, and it says, Interpreters, or readers, become so focused on the things in Revelation that are not clear that they fail to highlight and celebrate the things that are very clear. I think this is so true, and I love preparing for this sermon. It was so much fun, but to get to the things that are very clear and to celebrate those, we've got to understand the purpose and the history of why John wrote Revelation. John wrote Revelation as he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he was exiled not just to get out of town, but because they sent him there to die. And while he's on this island, he has a, a revelation, or what might be a better word, is an unveiling so that he can see the spiritual realm. And that revelation is given to him by Jesus. So I'm going to read the first verse here. Here's what it says, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this letter, written to some of the first churches that ever existed in our movement, is detailing a revelation or an unveiling of the spiritual realm. Jesus is allowing John to see the spiritual realm. We're, we talk about God's upper story, and we talk about our lower story here. At this time, John is kind of able to see both. He sees worship. He sees a battle. He sees the apocalypse. And then he sees, most importantly, God's final redemption of his people. It's not that simple. I wish it was, but it's not. There, there are metaphors, there's similes, there's, there's codes, there's symbols, there's allusions to the Old Testament. And what happens is it's really a, easy for us to get confused, but this was written to seven churches in Asia Minor. The confusing nature of Revelation is going to put people in our life kind of in two camps. And, and I, I hope I'm not offending anybody here, but it's Revelation, so what would I be doing if I didn't offend somebody? I, I think in our world, I don't think this is 2,000 years ago, but in our world, reading Revelation or just having an idea about what Revelation is about, it's going to put people in two camps. And, and one camp I'm going to call, it's the people who come up with, with the, the cool term tinfoil theories, you know, the people who wear the tinfoil hats. And they, and they read Revelation 9.3, and Revelation 9.3 talks about locusts and scorpions, and, and they say, well, these locusts, they were destroying the people without destroying the earth, without touching the grass, so it's not really about scorpions, that's, that's about helicopters, and, and these helicopters are going to start a war, and then every new war we get, we say, oh yeah, this war, it's the end. I don't think that's what John is saying. John's saying something so much bigger here. Another tinfoil theory Infamous, we all know about it, the mark of the beast. Revelation 13, let me read that for you. It forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands 
or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So some theories would say that, you know, this is talking about the future. And a lot of people said when the euro was created, that's one step to the, to the mark of the beast because one world currency means that Jesus is going to come back. And then if we have a global bank, oh, Jesus is going to come back. Um, you know what I think? Having a mark on your right hand where you can buy and sell things sounds a lot like the Apple Watch. <laughs> and check this out. Next slide. Next slide. N n next slide. Go, go, go. I got this. Get ready. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. If you curve the watches perfectly, you can turn the Apple Watch into a 666. That's why I have the Android watch. You can't buy and sell with this thing. I, I just got a text from Jason. That's kind of weird. Now, now, church, I would not call myself a theologian. I studied a lot for this. I would not call myself brilliant. But what I can say with full conviction is that the Apple Watch is not the end of the world. It might be the end of your wallet. I can't afford it. That's also why I have the Android watch. So theories like this, we've got, we've got tinfoil theories over on this side where, where we say, oh, John didn't mean a locust, John meant a helicopter, or John didn't mean a mark, John meant the Apple Watch. That causes other people to go on the other side in a direct reaction that's just throwing up your hands and saying, oh, I, I don't know, who cares? Let's just, let's just praise Jesus, which is good, but that ignores the entire final book of Revelation. I was talking with Clint this week, and, and he told me this cool story. He took a, a, a class on Revelation, and, and the professor said, would you guys like to know what Revelation is about? And the class said, well, yeah, that's, that's why we're here. And he said, who wins? And the class said, who loses? And the class said, whose side do you want to be on? And the class said, gods. And the professor's like, well, that's Revelation. <laughs> Jamie and I joked that my sermon today should just be, uh, good morning, we win, and then just walk <laughs> off stage. And, and I have to admit, for most of my life, that has been my approach towards Revelation, that I'm sure it'll make sense when we die, and when I get to heaven, I'll ask God, why did you let John do so many drugs on Patmos? <laughs> You know, that's been my approach. Who cares? We'll get it figured out later. God's God, the devil loses, and let's just go back to the Gospels. That is such an easy approach to take. But we don't get blessed by what John actually wrote. There is amazing stuff in here, and if we just ignore it, we're, we're, we're like reading 90% of the Bible. I was really surprised as I started researching for the sermon this week. The essays, the scholars that I read, the, the sermons that I watched, the research that I did, a lot of people are actually in agreement with a lot of what Revelation says. 666, the beast, the dragon, there's a lot of agreement that makes a lot of sense and they can prove it. But all of the agreement, all of the understanding about Revelation comes down to one super obvious point, and it's this. John wrote Revelation to seven young churches 1,900 years ago. So if he's writing it to seven churches, he's not writing it to 10,000 churches 2,000 years later. Why do doomsday predictions, why do they come and go? Why do theories fall flat? 
Because all of us here, we are outsiders to the context that Revelation was written in. We're trying to understand a letter with 2,000-year-old imagery through our own eyes, through our own experiences, through our own world events, and that's just not what John was writing about. Believers in first-century Christendom, they had a huge advantage of us. These churches, when they read Revelation, they were familiar with the images in Revelation. They were familiar with the symbols. They understood what John was writing about. There are over 500 allusions and references to the Old Testament in 400 verses of Revelation. That's crazy. And those churches, they knew the Old Testament probably better than we do. Those seven churches at the time, just kind of a history lesson, they were experiencing persecution like we will never experience. The fastest growing religion at that time, it wasn't Christianity. It was actually the, what they called the imperial cult of Rome. Rome decided that the, that the Caesar's family, they were all gods and you had to worship them. And people bought into it. The currency that they used had a picture of Caesar on it, but not Caesar as a man, but Caesar actually as God. Some Christians, and, and most Romans, but even some Christians, they believed that the evil emperor Nero, that he was so much a god that he was actually going to come back to life too. Some Christians believed that. That's what, they were felt, that's what they were hit with, and the persecution was from the government, the persecution was economical, and the persecution was from all of the society. So that is why John is writing this letter. He's writing a letter to churches in the middle of persecution, and he's writing it to give them hope. He's writing it as a letter of encouragement to give them a blessing. And he says this, Romans chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Or another translation you could say, or the season is at hand. So often throughout history, we've treated Revelation as a code. And if we can decipher this code, we're going to know when the apocalypse happens. We make, it, we make it about us finding out something. But that's not at all what I get when I read Revelation. The goal of Revelation is to bless the seven churches who are facing severe persecution. So if John wanted to bless somebody, if John sees these churches dealing with death and murder, and he sees them, how would it be a blessing to say, hey guys, I got this letter for you but it's not really for you. It's for these Christians 2,000 years later, and it's about all of these codes, and it's about helicopters. I know you don't know what a helicopter is, but it's about a war between America and China. I know you don't know what America is, and it's going to be an apocalypse like this. That's not going to be a blessing. He is writing to give them hope in their present day. Revelation was written for people 1,900 years ago so they could find hope, and that hope is not that there's going to be an apocalypse. The hope is that Jesus has already won the battle. Jesus had, has already conquered death. If you're afraid of death, don't worry. Jesus has already overcome that. I'm going to share a couple of my misconceptions that I've had about the afterlife today, and I think that if I had these misconceptions, some of us here might too. And one of the misconceptions about Revelation is that everything in Revelation is talking about something that hasn't happened yet. 
And that's just not true. Revelation 5 has a beautiful scene. I don't want to call it a worship service. It's like a worship event with an infinite number of angels praising God, worshiping Jesus. It's in Revelation 5, verse 11. I've got it behind me. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Sounds familiar like a song we just sang. John is not providing hope by describing the future. John is providing hope by saying, hey, when you guys worship in your church in secret, you are surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 angels. You are not alone. And church, the song that we just sang, we're not the only ones singing that. What Revelation is telling us is 2,000 years ago, they started singing that song. They're still singing it today. And when, when the world ends, however that happens, we're going to continue to sing that song. Jesus is not going to be victorious. Jesus already is victorious. Jesus isn't going to be the worthy lamb. That's not what John's saying. Jesus isn't going to be worthy. Jesus is worthy right now. That's a blessing. And that's what John was doing. So John writes this down so that they know they're not alone. Because Jesus has already been victorious. And in Romans 12, Paul says exactly what I just said. He says, when we sing with the angels, we're not doing this alone. And that's what Revelation is about. But that's not what I've always thought Revelation was about. Revelation, if we're going to be honest, it's going to challenge some of the things that we normally think about the afterlife. It's going to, it's going to challenge the things that Christians think about the afterlife, people who don't believe. Many of the ways that I've, things that I've thought about the afterlife it challenged me in Revelation because I've always seen heaven as the goal. I'll admit, when I was a teenager and I got baptized in a freezing cold river, I got baptized to avoid hell. And I think that's normal. I got baptized so I could die, poof, go to heaven. That's why you do it, right? I've always imagined heaven is the city on the clouds, and when I die, I get to go be with God. I sung the lyrics, help me out, church. Some glad morning when this life is over... I'll fly away to the home on God's celestial shore. I believe this. I've sung the, I actually led that song at church last week. I love the song, but that's not really what Revelation says is going to happen. If we read the whole Bible, we realize that's not exactly what it's talking about. So I want to share a couple of ways that Revelation challenged me as I prepared for this sermon, challenged my ideas, challenged the things that all of us think about what heaven is. So the first thing that, that really challenged me is the idea that Jesus came to earth so that we could be saved. Francis Chan is a great speaker, and, and I saw him in 2008, and I have never forgot this moment. He ran to the front of the stage, and he grabbed his Bible, and he said, if you read this whole book, and you think the point is to say a prayer, get baptized, and go to heaven, you are not reading the whole book. And in the same way, if you read the whole book of Revelation 
and you think that Jesus was crucified so that we can go to heaven, you're not reading all of Revelation. If that's what you believe the Bible is about, that's turning the Bible, the story of God, and making it about us. It's also cheapening what Jesus did. To narrow all of Jesus' ministry down to, so I can go to heaven, that's cheapening what Jesus did. What we read in the Bible, what Revelation says, is so much bigger. It's the story of God, and God redeems his people. So this is not true. Jesus did not come so that we could be saved. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth. When Jesus began to preach at the beginning of his ministry, he didn't, he didn't go, hey, hey guys, guys, uh, come over here and you can go to heaven. That's not how Jesus began his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. If we think Revelation is just about salvation, we're missing it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb, that's Jesus, standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bows, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. This is not 2,000 years in the future. This is happening. Jesus has already done this, and he is worthy of our praise. And in graduate school, my friend came home. I was sitting in our apartment, and he, he was going through seminary. And he said, hey, in one phrase, tell me what the Bible's about. And I'm like, Jesus, God, I didn't know what to say. I said, I have no idea. Please teach me, oh brother. And he said, what I learned today in class was that the entire point of the Bible, the topic that transcends Genesis to Revelation, is the kingdom of God. If you look in Genesis, if you look in the prophets, if you look in the Gospels, if you look in Revelation, the thing that ties them all together is that God is establishing a kingdom. And Jesus' goal, Jesus' purpose, was to prepare and usher the way for that kingdom. That's God's will, and that was only possible through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus brings us salvation. Jesus brings us abundant life. Jesus changes and restores us, and these are all true things. But these are the result of living in the kingdom of God. This is what happens when you live in that kingdom. Jesus didn't come to become a spiritual parachute to help us just avoid hell. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God on earth, and he did that by defeating death. Another misconception I had about, about the afterlife and about heaven, whatever heaven actually means, another misconception I had about that is that heaven is a celestial city. Now, if you're a super nerd, you're going to know what I'm doing on this PowerPoint behind me. If you don't get it, ask some of these, yeah, ask the second row right here or Riley. Riley's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't know, yeah, you probably have a social life. 
I just insulted everybody in like one sentence. The more we learn about the afterlife, the more we can realize, and, and this, this is the tough thing to admit, but the more we can realize that movies, that tradition, that religions that predate Christianity, they have traditionally had a very large influence on how we, how we view the afterlife. The whole idea of ascending to a city in the clouds where God is the mayor and, and we just have a normal life, but God is in charge of everything, that's not at all what we read about in Revelation. Instead, here is what we read about. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I used to think that heaven was a cloud city. And what I've learned was the afterlife, our destiny, is that God creates a new heaven and a new earth. You know, Revelation isn't just the last book of the Bible. We've got Revelation, the poster right here, and then we've got Genesis right over there. It's not just the end of a story. It's also a brand new beginning. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And in the end, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, we, Adam, man, we chose sin over God. And in the end, in Revelation, God redeems us and sin can no longer separate us. In the beginning, Israel needed a temple so that they could worship God. And in Revelation, God comes down to earth and becomes that temple. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. God is not creating a special city for us in the clouds where, where it revolves around him because he's the mayor and he's already saved us. Revelation tells us that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. God isn't the mayor. He's the power plant inside the whole city. The light comes from God. Jesus is the lamp. That's where we are destined to go. If you look really closely, and I don't have time to do that today, but if you look at how New Earth looks, if you look at how New Jerusalem looks, there are a lot of things that are kind of mirror images of the Garden of Eden. Now, it is not Garden of Eden 2.0. Instead, it's what Eden would have turned out to be had we not chosen sin over God. It's everything God intended when he first created the earth. Heaven is in the city in the clouds. New heaven and new earth are our destiny. And then finally, I used to think, like the songs say, when we die, we get to go to heaven to be with God. That used to be what I thought. When I Googled heaven, this is one of the images that I've got. You know, I've got a stairway to heaven. It's a cliche. But this is actually the exact opposite of what Revelation says. Revelation doesn't say, look, Look, all of those saved people, they got baptized and now they get to live with God. It actually says the polar opposite. Revelation 21, verse 3. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Not only is our destiny a new heaven and a new earth, our destiny is for God to come and be with us. That's our destiny after we die. God created the earth. We read about that 31 weeks ago, and it has been awesome going through the story. I've really enjoyed it. I, I'm proud of my small group. We, we have a great time. I started the story my first week here. I didn't know anybody in my small group, and now it's the highlight of my, of my week with Grace, where it's like, yeah, yeah. We, we love it. It's great. I'll brag. We're, the, we're, we're awesome. We're cool. But, oh, I forgot where I was going with that. I just got on my little pedestal there. Oh, yeah, yeah. 31 weeks ago, when we read about Genesis, God created a home for us. But we chose a different direction. We chose sin. But in Revelation, God does the same thing again. He creates an earth so that we have a new home a new city, a city where God lives with us. Revelation 22. This is great. The angel, then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light. Remember this part. And they will reign forever and ever. This is wild. This is not at all what I thought our lives would look like after we die. If, if, if you caught this, this is the second time in Revelation that the scriptures say that man is going to reign over this new creation. God creates it and gives us authority over the new creation. How many times have we thought about heaven? Have we thought about the afterlife and thought, well, God's going to put me in charge? I've never thought about it like that before, but that's what Revelation says. God's will is not for us to go, as cool as, as this would be, have a party on top of the clouds. That'd be fun. That's a cool thought. It's just not true. God's will is to reign through us in a new creation. In Genesis 31 weeks ago, God created the earth. He created Adam, and he said, Adam, here's the earth, here's the animals, take care of them. And at the same time, God dwelled with Adam. God ruled through Adam, and Adam took care of the earth. His desire in Genesis was simple. God just wanted to be with us. He wanted to coexist with man. But here's the thing. That was not just Genesis. God hasn't changed. That's still our destiny. I love this. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God doesn't win. God has already won. The battle 
it's over. Whatever happens after today, it's just, it's just the ending. It's the closing scenes. Because Jesus has already, through his death, prepared the way for the kingdom of God. We're going to rule in that kingdom with God's power. And God, as we do that, he's going to dwell with us. Our destiny, God's will, it wasn't ruined in Genesis. The kingdom of God is going to get to dwell with God. Or rather, God is going to dwell with his kingdom. Because this isn't our story. This is God's story. And that's what it's all about. You know what's up. That's cool. So that is Genesis, and that's the, that's the story. We, we, we've started 31 weeks ago, and then we've got Revelation, and that's, that's where it all ends. It has been a great experience, and um, we're all going to have a new context to put all of this in. And it's all about the upper story, and it's all about the kingdom. And so I hope that my misconceptions, these ideas, I hope that I've been able to challenge you because God, when we read the Bible, he wants to work through us. And some of these things that I used to believe, God is challenging me. And God will challenge you when you read through the Bible. So let's all stand. We're going to have a song right now. And if you want to pray with somebody next to you, if you want to go across the auditorium and pray with somebody else, that is a great time. But I just want us to be open to a time that God can work in our hearts and that God can challenge the things that he wants to challenge in our lives. So let's sing. If you want to come down to the front, you can pray with some of the shepherds.